Well, good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and so great to have as our guest again, Judge John V. Denson. Judge Denson is, uh, you know, was an important judge. Uh, he's an important attorney and continues to be an important historian as well. And we'll be linking to his books at the end of this podcast. But uh, he's going to be talking today about two additional books that he's read, uh, one on the Kennedy assassination, one on the murder of um, James B. Forrestal. So, John, uh, tell us about these books and tell us what they signify. It's, uh, this is fascinating material. Well, these are, these are two books that I had time to read during the, sh- the close down of the, uh, due to the virus. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I was reading the third book I've read of William Engdahl, who's a geopolitical writer. And uh, in sort of an off-the-cuff statement, uh, he mentions that uh, about the confession of the, one of the assassins of uh, John Kennedy. And I went back and read the sentence again. I said, well, what? <laughs> I don't know about a confession being made that's been uh, written about. So fortunately, there was a footnote, and it, it uh, cited a book called Files, F-I-L-E-S, on JFK. Interview with the confessed assassin James E. Files. It uh, was published in 2005, but it's the first time I've ever heard of the book. The first time I've ever heard that anybody confessed to the murder. And I was very skeptical about it, but I ordered it and it came right away from Amazon. And uh, the man that's behind uh, doing the book. And his financed at the time this book was re- was published about a million dollars for the investigation. Is a guy from the Netherlands named Wim W I M Dankabar, and um, was, when I got it, it looked so ominous with six hundred pages. I said, well, "I'm not going to start and read it. It's not a narrative. It's got chapters you can read, and, t- and one chapter is the first deposition given by Files on the murder." And that was in uh, 1994, and then he did another one in 19 uh, in 2004, I think it is. And so I read those transcripts, and they were so detailed and so convincing that then I went back and read the whole book. And it's got uh, interviews with other uh, important witnesses to the JFK murder. So uh, this is the sort of the backstory of how this came about. There was a, a private investigator who was retired named Joe West, and he filed a lawsuit to exhume the body of Kennedy in order to uh, see what changes were made by the autopsy. And there was a rumor that the body is not really there, that it was removed later. So he wanted to, to uh, get the body exhumed and, and see what could be found. So he was given a tip by an, a retired FBI agent and just said, uh, look, you might want to talk to this guy named Files who's in prison in Illinois for attempted murder. And I interviewed, the agent said, I interviewed him back years ago. He was part of the Chicago mob. And he might be able to tell you something, but he didn't say anything about assassination. So uh, Miles had been contacted by... uh, Various people like Oliver Stone had seen him three times trying to get him to talk, and he refused to talk. And he said later he just didn't like Oliver Stone's personality and didn't trust him, but he did get his autograph. (laughs) But he liked Joe West, and he was interested in the lawsuit. 
And he told Joe West that if you look in the in the brain, you'll if it's Kennedy, there'll be mercury there. But he didn't tell him why that would be there, but that'll be a sign that, that it is the real body. So Joe uh, West uh, had heart problems, and then something happened to the medication, and Files thinks he was murdered. And so the lawsuit got dropped. But a guy named Bob Vernon then steps in and starts talking to Files. And he's the one that was able to get the uh, video deposition the first time. And then there was a second video uh, deposition the second time. Uh, there are two of them. So Files finally tells the whole story of how the assassination took place. So his background was he grew up on the streets of Chicago, <clears throat> a tough neighborhood, and committed his first murder when he was just 16 years old. It was a revenge murder, a family feud. And then he joined the Army in the 82nd Airborne and then Special Forces and was stationed in Laos in 1959 and 1960 and was uh, became known as an expert marksman and a right vicious uh, murderer. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what his military record, whether he got discharged or what <laughs> happened, but the word got out to the Chicago mob when he came back that this— this might be a good guy to get on our team. So they hired him. Uh, Charles, a guy named Charles Nicoletti was the main hitman for the Chicago mob. And he hired him as a driver first. And then he got him to run what's called a chop shop, where they take cars and chop them mm -hmm. up and so forth. And that's where this FBI agent that gave the tip to Joe West met first met Files. And so then... Um, Nicoletti uh, tells him, I want you to work with me on some assignments. So they worked together with the CIA on some murders. And he says that he and Nicoletti one time went to the uh, CIA plane to South America mm. and killed about 50 people. So anyway, they, they get up to the uh, close to the time of the Kennedy murder. And the first time he heard about it, was the murder was going to take place in Chicago because Kennedy was going to visit Chicago. Then that was called off. Then it was going to be in Dallas. And his assignment, he said, was that he was just going to be a secondary shooter, that he was uh, supposed to go to Dallas and take all the weapons in a hidden compartment in a car and take them to a motel. Then the next day, somebody would contact him and take him to a place where he could test those weapons mm -hmm. and uh, calibrate the sight. The most, I guess one of the most amazing things about this is that the gun that he used uh, was furnished to him by a prominent CIA guy uh, named uh, Atlee Phillips. Um, and uh, Phillips later became one of the top CIA people. But that was his contact person that he was supposed to stay in contact with. And uh, Phillips was the only other person that knew he was at this motel. <clears throat> so there was a knock on the door, and it was Oswald. He'd never met Oswald before. And he said, how did you know I was here? And he said, my contact is uh, Adley Phillips. And so they had the same control guy with the CIA. So uh, the gun that he was furnished to use was called a fireball. And it was a specially made gun that was not on the market uh, for the public at the time, but the CIA had it. And it looked like a pistol, but it had a sight on it and a collapsible uh, stock 
that you could put on your shoulder. And it shot one bullet. <clears throat> and he said that there was a man called Wolfman in the Chicago mob that uh, altered the bullet. So he bored a hole in the front and put mercury in it and then put a cap on it. So the, what the bullet, it was a high-velocity uh, weapon. And when it hit the, the target, it exploded. So he said uh, <clears throat> that's what happened uh, with the Kennedy assassination. So he was to be an alternate shooter, and the main shooter was going to be Nicoletti. And Oswald wasn't involved at all in the shooting. And that uh, uh, Nicoletti was in the back, and the shot was going to be to the back of Kennedy's head. But if Nicoletti uh, did not get a, a good headshot, then he uh, Files was to be the secondary shooter, and he was have to shoot Kennedy from the front. And they didn't want to do that; didn't have to. But Nicoletti's first shot hit Kennedy in the back, so that meant Files had to shoot. So he aimed at the right eye, and Nicoletti fired almost fired a second shot almost simultaneously, which hit Kennedy in the head and knocked it a little bit forward. Then. Foul shot knocked it backwards and knocked the back of his head off. So um, in one of the depositions, he's confronted with the, uh, the statement, well, uh, how many shots did you fire? He said, I fired one. So were you the only person firing from the front? He said, as far as I know, he said, well, how do you explain the bullet hole in the front of Kennedy's throat? He said, well, in a team approach like we have here, they never tell you who else is involved. So if there's another shooter and you're arrested and you're given some sort of truth serum, you don't know uh, who the other people are. He said, if there was another shooter, I was not told about it. So it's possible that could be. So um, the murder takes place, and then um, the three times that he is, people try to murder him. And uh, Nicoletti was murdered uh, just before he was to testify before Congressional Committee, and the man above Nicoletti was also murdered. But uh, I guess uh, Files is safer in prison than he would be anywhere. <clears throat> so uh, the book goes into a whole lot of things to um, bolster the story. And um, it's amazing to me that this detailed report in this 600-page book with all these details has never... Uh, received as much publicity. I'm not an expert on the Kennedy assassination. Uh, I've read uh, James Douglas' book, which I think is really good, The Unspeakable, Why Kennedy Was Killed and Why It Matters. And, of course, I read the first one that came out by Mark Lane. You know. But uh, maybe there are people that uh, are very familiar with this book, but it is extremely interesting. And uh, the first time I've ever read the, the gory details of how the murder took place. So... Uh, it's a book that I, I recommend uh, uh, people look at, especially the experts on the Kennedy assassination, and uh, <clears throat> make up your own mind about the credibility of, of files. But uh, the details that he has and all the information the FBI has apparently furnished secretly to these investigators, I, su I suppose these are retired FBI agents that interviewed other people that um, these other people they interviewed uh, gave testimony that was uh, inconsistent with the lone uh, assassin of Oswald. So the FBI told them to be quiet and disappear. They didn't turn their names over to the Warren Commission, but they turned them over to this investigation here. So those people are interviewed that show that there were multiple shooters from multiple directions. 
<clears throat> it even implicates the Bush family some, that uh, George H.W. Bush was involved with a lot of the people in Dallas that helped uh, mm-hmm. arrange all this. But Files is asked, well, do you have any regrets about killing Kennedy? He said, no, I didn't like him. I said, why not? He said, well, he betrayed the uh, people at the Bay of Pigs invasion, and I never liked him after that. So he had no remorse about killing uh, the president of the United States. But the thing that stands out to me is how the, the involvement of the CIA so intimately with the mob in Chicago, how they do, use them for m- regime changes in foreign countries, but how they have the president murdered in uh, America with the weapon that they furnished the assassin. So uh, it's a remarkable story. I remember the, the evil Pompeo, who's now Secretary of State but was head of the CIA, he gave a... Uh, a talk to a, a graduating class of some college, I don't remember which one, and he, he said in his talk, he said, of course, as head of the CIA, uh, we lied and we stole. And, and uh, a, lot of other, a lot of people pointed out, well, he's, of course, not mentioning he murdered, because of course, this is, the CIA is mostly a murder operation, as this, as this book shows in one small aspect of it. Uh, I don't know telling how many people they, they kill and... Um, I was told by one expert on this that they specialize in killing people within the United States as well as overseas, mainly on the operating table <laughs> if, uh, if somebody has to go. Well, that's what Files thinks happened to Joe West. He thinks that somebody oh. messed with his medication and killed him yeah. while he was in the hospital. I might go back to give you the full name of um, Phillips' uh, CI, David Atley Phillips. Yes. Yeah, famous the, guy, yeah. Was the contact man for, for Files and Oswald. Wow. Uh, Files says one other thing is that uh, Oswald was supposed to have been shot by one of the uh, Chicago mob people uh, right afterwards. And the uh, policeman got in the way, and he had to shoot the policeman first. And um, so then they had to uh, call on Ruby to finish off Oswald before he talked. But... Uh, Oswald, as is, is, is he indicates, was a patsy. Yes, and, as he uh, himself said about, he called himself a patsy. And you know, there must have been an interview with Oswald after the arrest and before he was shot, and we never, no. <laughs> never heard what Oswald said when he volunteered, when he yelled out, I'm just a patsy. Yeah. But um, very interesting story. The other book that I read during the, the lockdown was a, a brand new book, called Assassination of James Forrestal. James Forrestal was a, uh, a man who made a fortune on Wall Street, a uh, very upstanding, uh, intelligent person that was in the Roosevelt administration as uh, a, a lower position than Secretary of Defense, but he was the first Secretary of Defense and uh, served under Truman and under Truman as Secretary of Defense. He made this uh, statement to Truman along with Secretary uh, George Marshall that, he, that Truman should not recognize the state of Israel and uh, after the U.N. had created the state of Israel. While they both uh, made the statement, Marshall didn't make a threat to go public, but Forrestal did. Forrestal said that <clears throat> he, uh, he planned to write a book about what happened in the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, and um, he was going to buy a newspaper, and he was going to go public with all this. So what this book brings out is that um, he had a good friend named Bernard Baruch. And um, Baruch told him, said, look, uh, you, you, you're unwise to take that position on the state of Israel. It could be dangerous for you. 
Well, Forrestal kept a diary, a loose-leaf diary, in his office as Secretary of Defense, and uh, he became very agitated and nervous and so forth. They said he needed to be hospitalized, and so his, his diary was confiscated, and most of it uh, purged, except for one uh, what appeared probably an insignificant thing where he played golf with Joe Kennedy one day in December 1945, the diary says. And Kennedy tells him that uh, when uh, Kennedy was the ambassador to England, William Bullitt was the ambassador to France under Roosevelt. And uh, the Treaty of Versailles had made a, uh, had made a lot of alterations to create the, the country of Poland. Poland had ceased to exist as a country in the end of the 18th century. So one of the 14 points by Wilson was to recreate the state of Poland and build a corridor so that they would have a seaport. And the corridor went right through the middle of Germany and separated East Germany and give them a city called Danzig, a German city, that would be run by the League of Nations. Well, Hitler was told by several of the uh, representatives of England, diplomats, that they had no objection to uh, Hitler negotiating a peaceful change of that, that they thought that his plan was very reasonable, and that plan was to build a road or a railway across the corridor to attach the separated part of Germany and to give Danzig back to Germany because uh, they had uh, the corridor created another uh, seaport for them. So Hitler was led to believe that <clears throat> this was something that could be negotiated peacefully. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that what happens in Kennedy's uh, statement is, is that uh, Roosevelt called Kennedy and said, uh, look, uh, we need to uh, stop any negotiations between Poland and Germany uh, over uh, revising the Treaty of Versailles. So I'm telling William Bullitt to meet with the Polish authorities and tell them not to even meet with Hitler, do not negotiate. And I want you, Joe Kennedy, to tell the British to give the Poles a guarantee that if they don't negotiate and, and uh, Germany attacks, that, that you will guarantee that you will back them up. <clears throat> Kennedy tells Roosevelt, says, look, <laughs> if, if you don't let them negotiate, Hitler will, will attack. And, and Bullitt told Roosevelt, no, they won't. They'll, they're just bluffing. Well, Poland refuses to negotiate. Hitler attacks in September 1, 1939, and World War II starts. This is a pretty uh, inflammatory thing. So um, when uh, Forrestal was in the hospital, uh, he was supposed to be released in that morning. During the night, he allegedly commits suicide. <clears throat> and uh, Jumping out the window. <laughs> the, he committed suicide twice. He... Uh, he first tied a, uh, his bathrobe sash around his neck and tied a tight knot in the back to choke himself to death. Then he jumped out the window, they said. Well, obviously, he was murdered, but the, uh, the full report was it was suicide. So you can disregard that, uh, that entry in his diary about this conversation with Joe Kennedy. That's something he imagined. And uh, so just discard. So... Anytime you mention about Forrestal's diary, and, the, and a book came out called Forrestal's Diaries, where this was in it, people have dismissed that because he, he committed suicide. Well, this book that's just come out is called The Assassination of James Forrestal. There was a prior book written 
uh, by the John Birch Society that uh, said that he was murdered. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> but they didn't have the official uh, Navy investigation report. This book through the three. Because it was a naval. The Na- Bethesda the, Naval Hospital. He was at Bethesda, yeah. which is a dangerous place to be if the government <laughs> doesn't like you. It's Joe McCarthy and others. Yeah. And they, they did the autopsy, I think, of Kennedy. I don't know. but uh, That's right. Anyway, uh, and and actually there was a, a statement that when they were forcing Forrestal out of the car to go to the hospital, he said, I'll never come out alive. So he, I think he knew he was in danger. Mm. Anyway, this uh, this book came out just this year, 2019. It's written by David Martin, and he filed a Freedom of Information Act and got the official Navy investigation for the first time. It's been hidden 55 years or so, and it completely uh, backs up the fact that he was murdered, and that's why it's been held mm. so long. And uh, he asked for the photographs uh, of the autopsy and so forth, and first, they said they were going to with, withhold them so that the family wouldn't be offended by looking at them. And then said, well, there's no family left. And said, well, well they've been lost. <laughs> so, uh-huh. But he did get the report. And it, um, it shows, uh, in my opinion, that it was, uh, it was clearly that he was murdered. And they blame the Mossad and uh, uh, his, his uh, statements about Israel as, as being the, the motive behind the murder. So it's a very uh, interesting book, which uh, leads me to an argument that uh, I've, I've seen and that uh, I've uh, done some research on as to what was Roosevelt's motive in uh, having uh, Poland not negotiate? Why not try to settle a dispute? So there's a, an interesting book that uh, receives probably little publicity. is called... FDR and the creation of the UN by two establishment historians, um, Hoops and Brinkley. And uh, it's the story of how Roosevelt created the UN. And it brings into focus the fact that Roosevelt was in the Wilson administration, Assistant Secretary of Navy. He worshipped Wilson, and he, he thought that his idea of the League of Nations was the greatest thing. And so he went to the Paris Peace Conference and uh, observed that the, that Wilson was a person that just had complete adulation of the people. <clears throat> he was considered the man that brought the war to a close. He was going to solve the problem of war with the League of Nations. And uh, then he saw Wilson screw it up with uh, being so obnoxious so he wouldn't negotiate any changes when he got back to get the treaty uh, confirmed by the Senate. So uh, then Roosevelt runs for vice president on the 1920 ticket. And something I learned from another book was that his mother, Roosevelt's mother, was a big fan of Colonel House. And she gave him the book Philip Drew, Administrator, uh, to read in 1920, which was also a book that uh, Wilson liked. And, uh, of course, Colonel House was a big influence on Wilson. So you've got Colonel House with uh, influence in two presidents. But anyway... um, you get up to uh, the race for vice president. He made, this book says, 800 speeches in favor of the League of Nations. He was just obsessed by that that uh, failure, you know, and the training, the, not opposing, uh, approving the treaty. So then you get up to uh, the Atlantic Charter, 
where he meets with uh, Churchill uh, in uh, August before Pearl Harbor. And he brings up the United Nations and uh, says to Churchill, now, when the war is over, we need to create the United Nations, and um, he will be a part of it, and Russia and China uh, be parts of it. Of course, China wasn't communist then. But um, Churchill said, no, I, I believe in spheres of influence, but I'm not willing to give up sovereignty to join some world organization. Roosevelt made it clear that if you want America's help in your war, you're trying to get help, you better go along with this. Roosevelt said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. So um, there was somebody in um, Roosevelt's administration also that listened in on the communications between Roosevelt and Churchill. Tyler Kent was his name. And uh, it found out that Roosevelt was communicating with Churchill before Churchill was prime minister and then after prime minister, and all kind of plans were being made about how America was going to get into the war, that Roosevelt was going to create a situation where uh, America would get into the war. So uh, we have the a book now, Tyler, Tyler Kent, this case of Tyler Kent, I think by Snow is his name. And um, he was secretly, uh, he was caught uh, intercepting those messages and tried secretly under the uh, uh, stealing of state secrets in England on a secret trial, put in prison for the entire war, and um, released after the war. So we we have now the story of Tyler Kent and what all Roosevelt was saying now, because that book was written. Then we also have the book of how um, Roosevelt got us into Pearl Harbor and uh, got into the war. And then Day of Deceit by Stennett, to me, is the most complete book about that. Then what's amazing to me is that three weeks after Pearl Harbor, in January of 1942, Roosevelt assembles the representatives of 26 nations, and they sign an agreement to create the United Nations. They name it the United Nations. They all agree that they're not going to... Um, uh, make any separate peace agreements, and that they will join in a, a world organization named the United Nations. And then you get up to um, <clears throat> where he had to convince Stalin to get in, and he raised the same objection as Churchill about spheres of influence, but he also needed Roosevelt's help, you know. And so um, you have all these nations uh, signing on. So um, you... Uh, get down to finally the day that uh, Roosevelt died, and uh, he's in uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, and he is writing the speech that he's going to give at the opening session of the United Nations where he intends to resign as president and uh, lead the United Nations. So to me, there's sort of a trail of influence as to Roosevelt's motives uh, all the way back to the peace conference up to the creation of the United Nations. And I know it's bizarre. It's just an argument. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't have any insight other than these uh, these books. But uh, that's the reason that the assassination of James Forrestal is, is, is important because that was the first uh, indication that uh, Roosevelt had had an interference. But now we have another book that uh, is written by Herbert Hoover, and Hoover very wisely decided not to uh, have his book published till 50 years after his death, <laughs> which is what Forrestal should have done.
Uh, the book by uh, Herbert Hoover called Betrayal of Freedom, it has the interview that he had more extensively with Joe Kennedy, where he tells uh, Herbert Hoover the same story, and he uh, blames Roosevelt for starting World War II by making Poland uh, refuse to negotiate the change in the Versailles Treaty and making England give the guarantee. So the invasion of Poland takes place on September 139, and so England and France then declare war on September 3. And then you have the phony war until finally, uh, you know, Hitler goes on an attack because England and France have declared war on Germany. So it really leads you to believe that um, that Roosevelt was massively interfering with uh, international relations that helped bring on the war and that his ultimate motive would be maybe that he would be the greatest man who ever lived because he would create a world organization that would eliminate war, which was sort of the idealistic uh, ideas of Wilson, his uh, his mentor and idol. So uh, anyway, the Forrestal book, this new book, uh, rehabilitates Forrestal, in my opinion, that uh, that, that uh, conversation with Joe Kennedy took place, and now mm-hmm. you have uh, Herbert Hoover's book that uh, verifies it. Uh, 50 years after Hoover's death. So uh, that's what I've been reading uh, during the clo- uh, the virus close down and uh, pretty interesting books, I thought. You know, John, I, I've always been interested in old radio shows. And when I first really got interested, I was a teenager. And I was shocked to see that when they were talking about the war, giving war news and that kind of thing, it was the United Nations as versus Germany and Italy. And uh, it was... That's what they kept referring. This is long before the United Nations was established. But of course, I didn't realize it had been in effect established by this uh, 26 nation treaty. It's, it's amazing that the name had already been switched. Yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, I didn't they, like the United Nations, so I was, yeah, <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, Churchill, that many has 26 nations sign up for the United Nations three weeks after Pearl Harbor. Uh, pretty suspicious. And of course, he saw it as a much more powerful organization with himself at the head of it than it turned out to be. Yeah, and valued that more than being president. Yeah. Be a head of the world organization. You know, nations cause a lot of problems, but uh, <laughs> didn't turn out to be the quite the dream that uh, Wilson yeah. and Roosevelt hoped. Well, John, thanks. These are two fascinating books, the one on Forrestal, the one on the, the Kennedy, the assassination of these two men, very important, uh, terrible historical events, and... Uh, Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Okay, I always enjoy it, Lou. Always fascinating. And, of course, we'll link to your books. We'll link to these two books. And uh, hope people buy them, your books, these books. Yeah. And uh, They're both available on uh, Amazon. I just order them from Amazon. Oh, that's, that's what we'll And there put. is a, a website for uh, the guy that uh, edited the book on files called jfkmurdersolved.com. Tremendous. John, thanks a million. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you.